We began our On Target series with a foundational principle that nothing else matters unless we first love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Taking aim to hit that bullseye is our priority. Secondly, we explored the concept of compassion. I hope you remember uh, what we talked about compassion. It is that gut-wrenching reaction, that inescapable, intense feeling which compels us to action. In the third message, we explored the nature of poverty from a bird's eye view. We kind of got above everything and looked at it uh, uh, from high up. And with the, uh, that, 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 the preparation of that message, I'll tell you the one thing that really caught me off guard, the, the one thing that was an eye-opener for me was this whole concept that while most of us define poverty as a lack of material things such as food, money, clean water, medicine, housing, uh, genuinely poor people, on the other hand, look at their station in life and they consider this their focus, the sense of shame, inferiority powerlessness, humiliation, fear, hopelessness, social isolation, and voicelessness. That was an eye-opener for me. I didn't realize that that was even more painful than the lack of the material things. This morning, we want to bring it down from that 8,000-foot bird's-eye view to an 846-feet perspective. That, by the way, is the elevation of Bloomington, Indiana. How do we take what we've been studying and start to figure out a way to put it to work right here? Teddy Roosevelt said, this country will not be a place, a good place for any of us to live in unless we make it a good place for all of us to live in. Dorothy Height said, without community service, we would not have a strong quality of life. It is important to the person who serves as well as the recipient. It is the way in which we ourselves grow and develop. Now there is a beautiful story in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9 that takes place during the reign of King David that I think illustrates this whole concept that we're talking about today. But, but to get to 2 Samuel 9, you have to understand a little bit of the background to, make, to have it make sense. Now if you recall, the very first king of the nation of Israel was a man by the name of Saul. But Saul, during his reign as king, lost his way spiritually. God rejected him and his family and chose as his successor a young shepherd boy by the name of David. Now, it would be years before David would step into that role, but God had his pick when he rejected Saul as king. Now, David had a rather unusual relationship with King Saul. He worked in the palace. He, he played his harp and sang psalms for Saul when he was troubled in spirit, and it seemed to soothe him. Jonathan, Saul's son, was David's best friend in this world. As a matter of fact, there is no better picture of friendship in all of the Old Testament. And David's first wife was Saul's daughter, Michael, who was awarded to him following his victory over Goliath, the giant in the valley, and a military quest, a test is more what it was, that King Saul imposed on David. And when he came back, having fulfilled and completed it, he married the king's daughter. The problem was that the more popular and successful David became, the more jealous Saul became angry to the point that he didn't want David to live. Verse 28 of 1 Samuel chapter 18 reads like this. 
When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michael loved him, Saul became even more afraid of him and he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. There was a day in the palace when he was so angry with David that he threw his spear. David narrowly escaped and from that point on ran for his life out of the presence of King Saul. Now, a few years later, Okay, a few years later, it has come to the end of Saul's reign. God has prophesied this event. Saul and his army go into a battle against the Philistines, that constant thorn in the side of the Israelites. But this time, it is not God's army that wins. It is the Philistines that win by God's prophecy. And Saul and three of his sons, including Jonathan, die in the battle on the top of Mount Gilboa. Now, when word reaches the home of Jonathan that both Saul and Jonathan had died in the battle. The household not only goes into a state of grief and shock, but it is chaos because custom was in that day and time that the conqueror would not leave any of the king's family alive that could potentially lead a rebellion against the conqueror. And so in that moment, the family must flee for their safety. And a nurse picks up the young son of Jonathan. He is five years old. His name is Mephibosheth. And she is trying to flee the household with this young boy in her arms. We don't know what happened. We know that she dropped him, whether she stumbled and fell down the stairs and he dropped all the way down the stairs. We don't know if she was trying to hold him out a window so somebody could grab him and dropped him. All we know is that both of his ankles were broken, probably shattered. And Mephibosheth becomes a cripple for the rest of his life. The family escapes to a barren, desolate area called Lodabar. Now, Fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Years have passed. Mephibosheth has grown. He's married. He has a son of his own. David is now king on the throne. Peace is returned to the kingdom. The Ark of the Covenant that represents the presence of God has been brought back into the city of Jerusalem and the nation was living through some of the best days that it had ever experienced up to that point in time. And chapter 9 opens with this quest. Verse 1, one day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, it's, it's, it's highly unlikely that David ever knew about this son, Mephibosheth, because Jonathan would have given, Jonathan would have had this boy. His wife would have given birth during the time that David was fleeing from Saul's presence. So they probably never encountered each other. David wouldn't have known. David learns about Mephibosheth that he is a father of his own, that he has a young son named Micah. Now, by the standards of that culture, actually, folks, by the standards of any culture, this is an extravagant measure of grace. No one would have blinked if David had asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone that I should eliminate? But this... This question, this inquiry of grace, this extension of unmerited favor astounded his advisors. No one knew the answer. But they did know a man by the name of Ziba. And Ziba had been the manager of Saul's estate. And so they called Ziba in and Ziba related to the king. Yes, indeed there was a son. And he lives in the area of Lodabar. He was Jonathan's son and he's crippled. In both feet. The call goes out to Lodabar and Mephibosheth makes his way to the palace. Now, folks, I am quite certain 
that when Mephibosheth leaves his home and family, he says goodbye to everybody, kisses his son, expecting to die at the palace because after all, he thought he had hidden pretty good. And maybe he even concluded, well, it's been a, it's been a long run. I've lived longer than I expected to live, but, but I've been found out. I have been called out. My life is at a conclusion. And so he comes to Jerusalem, enters the palace. And this, we pick up the story in verse 6. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Ah, oh, don't be afraid, David said to him. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? What a change. Genuine help had come. David came alongside this broken son of his best friend and turned his life around. And isn't that what God wants from every one of us? Doesn't God want us to go out from this place, come alongside of those who are hurting and impoverished and downcast and walk with them through these tough times of their life, helping them? Now, it's true. You can't restore land that has been lost. You probably can't feed people at your table for the rest of your life or their life. But we can come alongside of someone else and help them become their best. The story of David and Mephibosheth is filled with great lessons that I think are as relevant today as they were when Samuel penned these words about the event so many years ago. Here are some truths that come out of the story. First one is this. When we hurt, we hide. When we hurt, we hide. David had no idea that a son of Jonathan was alive. I'm convinced that if David had known about Mephibosheth sooner, he would have helped him sooner. I've noticed this about us. We tend to hide when we are hurt. Animals do that. When an animal gets wounded, it goes off and hides itself. When an animal is about to die, it goes off and it wants to die alone. And sometimes people do the same thing. We shouldn't. That's not the way God intended. When circumstances in life drop you and you feel crushed and broken, the last thing you need to do is play hide and seek. It makes it really hard for those of us who want to help to find you if you're hiding. And when you are hurting, you need the church, and the church needs you. Now, i got to tell you, the church isn't perfect. Uh, and we may not be able to meet every, every need. You know, we are imperfect people. But we want to help if we can. But when you hide and when you distance yourself from the church, it's hard to help. And so if you're the person here in the congregation this morning who's really hurting, ask, will you please let us know what, what we can do to help because we want to make a difference. Here's, here's another truth that comes out of this passage, and that is that circumstances unexpectedly change us. Mephibosheth went from being a prince to a pauper, but by no fault of his own. This, this was the result of his grandfather's disobedience when God rejected Saul as a king. It affected the entire family. Now stop and think about that. When you make choices in life that have consequences, they don't just affect you. Sometimes our choices in life can affect our children, our grandchildren, and even great-grandchildren. 
So be careful what you choose to do. Mephibosheth also went from being enabled to being disabled because of an accident which wasn't his fault either. Sometimes being in a broken world means unfair things happen. Bad things happen to good people. So when we look around us at those who are impoverished or those who are downcast or those who are struggling, we need to remember that they may be in those circumstances by no choice of their own. Now, some are, to be sure. We know that. Some people have made lousy choices in life, and that's why they are stuck in the circumstances that they find themselves in. But most people I know do not want to live that way. They want to improve. They're just trying to figure out a way to get there. And again, there are some who are content in their circumstances, who have no qualms about depending upon other people. I can remember during the years when we delivered food baskets over Thanksgiving time to people who would ask for them. And most of the time, the recipients were very appreciative. But some, on the other hand, would complain they wanted a ham instead of a turkey. Or they'd look inside the box and they would say, well, there's not near as much food here as what we were expecting. We need more food than what you've given. Now, i got to tell you something. When you're giving somebody a gift, and that's the response, it, it, it kind of sets you back a little bit. It, it, it's easy to get jaded against that kind of an attitude and to think that everybody is like that. They aren't. What happens if we're not careful is that we assume that all people who are struggling, who are impoverished, who are down on their luck, who are disheartened, are there because they want to be there and they're taking advantage of the system. There will always be those among us who take advantage of the system. But the vast majority who find themselves in the crisis moments that change their station of life are looking for someone to come alongside and help them get back on their feet. Not to do everything for them, just to help them get back on their feet. So don't let the negative encounters sour your desire to serve and help because... At any given moment in our lives, we can become that person. Today, things may be good. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Suddenly, you could find your life circumstances changed completely by no fault of your own. And when that happens, you don't want other people to look down with, with disdain upon you and assume that you're going to take advantage like some in the system do. You're just going to want somebody to come alongside of you and help you back up on your feet. Just look at Mephibosheth, the grandson of a king, the son of a prince. He was royalty. He might have been in line for the throne someday. And with one battle, everything changed forever. Do you know what that one battle, that one change, the loss of his grandfather, the loss of his his father, do you know what that did to him? Let me, let me tell you what it did to him. He suddenly went from living in the palace to living in fear. He hid from the king because he believed that his life was in danger. That wasn't true, but that's what he believed. Be ever so careful what you believe, folks. Make sure that what you're believing is the truth. Because if it's not the truth, it could change your life in negative ways. If he hadn't been so afraid, maybe. His life would have been better. Look at all the years he wasted in fear because he didn't believe the truth. He also lived with loss. All of his family's land now belonged to David, the new king. The rest of the family was dead. He was forced to take refuge in the house of a rich man named Makir. 
By the time of our story, he is a grown man with a child of his own, still dependent upon the goodness of his benefactor, which only emphasized in his own mind his sense of shame, inferiority, powerlessness, humiliation, fear, hopelessness, social isolation, and voicelessness. Just like the people today, that's how Mephibosheth would have felt. It wasn't what he wanted, but what option did he have? He had to live with the loss. Here's something else it did. He lived with low self-esteem. Do you notice what he said to David? What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Dogs were not pets then, folks. They were uh, disgusting scavengers. They were nasty, roaming through the streets, roaming through the countryside. You, you, you did not have a dog for a pet. When you cannot provide for your family, it eats away at one's self-esteem. You feel like a scavenger dog that's disgusting to everybody else. This is why the spiritual element of helping is so vital. The greatest boost to self-esteem is to learn that God has placed value on your life and my life. I think the best way to help somebody grow in their self-esteem is to realize God considers me valuable enough that he died in my place so that I could live with him forever. If the God of the universe thinks you're that valuable, that ought to raise your self-esteem greater than anything else can. And when you don't know that, you have no resource to get you there. And that's our job. That's the church's job to help spread that wonderful news. Here's another thing that happened to him. He lived with hopelessness. He moved to Lodabar, which means no pasture. In other words, this was a desolate, barren wasteland. When I was a kid with our family, we were on a vacation in Colorado. And we went to visit St. Elmo, which is a real honest-to-goodness ghost town. Not, not a Hollywood set. It was a ghost town. And it went bust after the gold mine shut down shortly after the turn of the previous century. But I remember we didn't stay there too long because there really wasn't anything to do. You know, you see a ghost town, that, that's about all you can do. You see the ghost town. Well, what's the best word to describe a ghost town? Hopeless. There's no life. There's no energy. There's no, there's no nothing. Hopeless. Mephibosheth chose a ghost town-like part of the countryside. An area that looked like he felt. Hopeless. Because when you've lost everything and you live in a country where most people farm or raise sheep, but you can't shepherd and you can't plow or plant or harvest because you're a cripple and you have no money to pay anybody to do that for you, plus you don't have the land anymore to raise the crops, you feel helpless and helplessness leads to hopelessness and hopelessness leads to a sense of failure and depression. Now today, in our modern age uh, of, of medical science, we can prescribe, doctors can prescribe medication that will help lift your spirits, your emotions, if you're depressed, but that doesn't solve the whole problem. I mean, what, what would have been done then when they didn't have medicine? What you really need is somebody to come alongside of you and let you know that you don't have to be hopeless, and together you'll walk together until they can accomplish something again. That's still the best medicine. 
And that's why what we can do today to help those around us who are living in their own low debar, their own barren wasteland of hopelessness is so important to our faith. To be a partner with them, helping without hurting. Folks, there are some circumstances, there are some situations, there are some tasks that are just almost impossible to do on your own. Did you ever try to open a table to put in a leaf all by yourself? That's pretty hard to do. You really need two people working together. You pull together, you meet in the middle, you put in the leaf, and then there's more room to feed people around the table. You see, when you live your life always trying to do things on your own, you will be discouraged, disheartened, and maybe even depressed. Some things are impossible to do by yourself, so don't. Either be the one who comes alongside to help or be willing to let somebody come alongside to help because you don't want to live in that area, that region of hopelessness. And, and then here's a third lesson that we see, and that is, and the strong must take the initiative. David didn't say, well, you know, if, if there are any of Saul's family left, if they ever contact me, I'll think about doing something nice for them. No, David took the initiative to help. Problems will never go away if we wait for someone else to take the lead. Problem solving seems to be a biblical principle. You realize that? And most often God is just waiting for us to conclude somebody ought to do something to fix this. And that's when God will probably say, why don't you? David was incensed when he heard the giant Goliath taunting the armies of God and, and, and God said, okay, David, you go fight him in the valley. Nehemiah cried himself to sleep at night and his sleep was restless because he couldn't rest. And so God says, all right, you go back and you rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem because when the news had come, Nehemiah lost all hope. And Nehemiah went back and the walls were soon rebuilt. Queen Esther knew that her people, the Jewish nation, was about to be exterminated and she was despondent. And God said, okay, Esther, for such a time as this, you go in and you make a difference. You solve the problem. H have you noticed that the greatest victories in the Bible start as problems? There, there, there's a word for people who have no problems. Dead. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps we need a God-sized problem that gets us off of dead center and gets us moving in the right direction. So what's your problem? Maybe you should turn to the person in the pew next to you and say, what's your problem? Well, maybe not, but you get the point. We, we need a problem to solve if, if, if we want God working in our life. God has plenty of problems in his world that need to be solved. What is it? What is it that drives you? What is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that makes you cry? And don't say, well, if someone tries to contact me, I think I'll do something nice. Just say, God helping me, I'm ready to tackle the problem. Peanuts comic strip creator Charles Schultz said, life is like a 10-speed bicycle. Most of us have gears we never use. So I would suggest to you this morning, it's time to kick it up a gear or two. Where do we start? Well, let me highlight some ways that Brad Pontius and our community outreach team have identified. And I'll just go through these quickly this morning. But, but there, and this is just, I'm just, I'm just hitting the, the tip of the iceberg this morning. Uh, donate healthy snacks to Community Kitchen for the Backpack Buddy Program. That, that's food that's given to kids to get them through the weekend. 
Uh, volunteer as a family to sort or uh, donated items at Monroe County United Ministries. You saw Aaron in the video a few minutes ago talking about the great work that, the, uh, that Mackham does. Well, you can volunteer there as a family and help do some of that very work. Organize your life group to throw an incentive party for a class of students who has improved their grades at some of these schools where they are struggling. Become a volunteer maintenance person for boys and girls clubs. Sign up to be a big brother or big sister for a child at Fairview or Templeton Elementary Schools. Did you know, did you know there are 70 little brothers and little sisters waiting to be matched up with a mentor, but there are no mentors to match them to? 50 of that 70 are boys. Boys who need a strong Christian mentor. Here's another one. Train to become a, a court-appointed special advocate. CASA. For a child. Once again, there are 72 kids on a waiting list for an advocate through CASA, but no advocates left to help them. Become foster parents. That's a big step. There are no open foster homes currently in Monroe County. Foster children are being doubled up in the homes that are available because there are more children than homes. Assist a family that is adopting with needed finances or goods or support or encouragement or babysitting or, or consider adopting domestically or internationally yourself. The, the, the needs are great, folks. There are 313 children in our community system that are officially considered homeless. 313 children. Now, there's many entry points where you can give, serve, befriend, intervene, nurture, or pray for the at-risk kids and families in our community. I've only highlighted a few. Best thing you can do is go to our church website, socc.org, and, and go to the on-target links that will help you learn how you can serve, where you can sign up, who you can get to. And some of these organizations that we'll be working with are, are really great about placing you in the right place, uh, maybe testing to see what your skills and levels are. And you say, yes, but why are we working with other organizations? Why shouldn't we just do it ourselves? Well, why do you want to let the government have all the fun? Why, why do you want the state to do what Christ has called us to do? By working with others, we're not duplicating efforts. And these organizations genuinely want our help, our hearts, and our faith to be present within their organizations. It's a wonderful opportunity. We get to be ambassadors for Christ we get to be a reflection of him to everyone. After all, that is the one thing we bring that many organizations cannot. You see, the real problem solver is Jesus Christ. When we give food, we can also give them the bread of life. When we have a cup of water to give to a thirsty person, we can also introduce them to the living water who is the eternal problem solver because without him, all of the help is minimal. It's not just about taking care of the body. It's about preparing the soul for eternity. And we, his church, his people, bring that to the equation. I like this quote from Dr. Martin Luther King as he reflected on the parable of the Good Samaritan. He said, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reversed the question, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to me? To him. Mephibosheth's story ends like this. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And he was still crippled in both feet. 
Grace made the difference. It wasn't something that David had to do. It was something that David extended to somebody who couldn't help themselves. I hope you can see the story isn't just about extending grace to those around us who are struggling. The greater message is this is what's coming in Christ. This story was a shadow of what would to be when Jesus came. You see, Mephibosheth moved from the desolate place to the capital city of Jerusalem. He went from being a pauper to living in the palace with his inheritance intact. Don't you see the story? Oh, people, this is our story. When we were crippled and crushed by the power of sin, God said, this is a problem I will solve. He didn't send anybody else. He came himself and he paid the price so that we who were spiritual paupers might move out of the hopeless, desolate area into the new Jerusalem. That we might live with our inheritance intact in the palace of the king in a place called heaven. This is us. You see, there are others around us who are struggling through life, but we're struggling through life spiritually without Jesus Christ. So this is our challenge this morning, to make the most of the opportunities that God has given us to reach them, but to reach them and help them and come alongside of them so that they might see a reflection of Jesus Christ because without him, we're all like Mephibosheth, crippled forever. But with him, everything changes. Will you take the challenge? Will you become his follower?